Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today, we're uh, welcoming back Michael Hendricks, who is a director of state and local policy at the Manhattan Institute. I think this is maybe your third or fourth time uh, being on the show. And in fact, you even uh, filled in once for Josiah when he was gone. So thanks for thanks for coming back. Thanks for keep making the mistake. <laughs> I'm sure there's going to be plenty of different things we can talk about uh, to, on today's program. But as we're recording this, you have an upcoming event here in Texas, the Texas Public Policy Foundation, called the Metropolitan Majority America in the Cities. And uh, that's going to bring you back home to Texas. And I believe that uh, Raihan Salam, also from Manhattan Institute, is going to be there. Without giving it all away, maybe just to tease the event, tell us a little bit about what you what you expect to come out of the event and and what, uh, you know, what... Uh, potential guests of the event might hear from you. Well, so Manhattan Institute is not just based in New York City and has a history in cities. I mean, it's just, it's in the name. But more than that, we care about cities, love cities. And, you know, they've really been getting a bad rap. And I think for good reason. Over the past year or so, they've been hit with pandemics. They've seen crime spikes and rioting. And then just, there've been long-standing challenges. It's harder than ever to afford a place to live in the city, uh, even as there may be great jobs available in some places like San Francisco. Good luck trying to afford there. And it's really been a rotten deal for, you know, blue collar, working class Americans, but also increasingly a rotten deal for immigrants, people from all around the world who come to America, come to cities. And historically, a place like New York City has been the place you come to Ellis Island and you start a future for you and your family. Eh, harder and harder to make that possible. And, you know, just the other week, I was in a classroom in Chinatown in New York City in Manhattan, listening to Chinese American parents say, you know, I just don't think that America is a place of opportunity for my kids anymore. They're better off in China than here in the United States. And you ask them why? And they say, well, it's not just jobs. It's not just COVID. It's really education. You know, we've, we, they literally said CRT, critical race theory is, is evil. Um, they feel like suddenly there's a new agenda that's separate from simply providing the best education for the most children um, and giving a future for them. So put it all together, prosperity, public safety, education. These are kind of basic concerns that many people in America have. And I think the argument we're going to be making at Manhattan Institute over the next handful of months and and, and honestly, years, is that there is a metropolitan majority in America, not just who live in cities. And, you know, by the way, America's 50 largest metros alone account for half the country's population. But also there's a majority of people who, you know, today just are pragmatic and persuadable on issues of prosperity, safety, education, who distrust the bleak narrative of wokeness in the classroom. And, you know, it really becomes clear when you see the difference between what you hear the city's uh, elected officials say and what the electorate say. You see that pop up in educational 
in, in, in hearings on schools, school closures, you, you see it in a number of different areas. And what's really interesting about this, this is not just, you know, you read left-wing rags and they'll make you think it's all Karens coming up and hearings and, you know, just denouncing just the commonsensical, uh, you know, le- le- left-wing leaders who, who really care about equity for the city. No, what's really interesting is you're hearing this from uh, uh, Hispanics, Asian, Black communities. Th- these are parts of America that maybe were Obama voters previously. And then uh, strangely in 2020, you begin to see them shift toward Trump. Now, this is not necessarily a partisan point I'm making. It's just that you're beginning to see more and more uh, Americans, especially in metros, vote uh, less by ethnicity and more by ideology, what they actually believe. And what they actually believe is, again, a focus on safety, good jobs, good education for their children. It's a multi-ethnic mainstream. And this multi-ethnic mainstream, you know, regardless of how they vote, I think the important point is they are a majority within metros, and they are going to be shaping the future, not just of those metros, but the future of this country. And so if we are not speaking to them and speaking for them, I think we're missing where the future of this country is really going. After you eloquently say that you're not just focused on New York, let's focus on New York. Maybe this isn't particularly fair since uh, you know I know that your office there, but I think that you, like many other New Yorkers, were not actually living in the city through at least parts of the pandemic. But I did kind of want to get your take on how the maybe New York City has been coming out of the pandemic and whether that's all reversed course in the recent months. How how are things faring there? Uh, and what's been your overall impression? Yeah, I mean, well, well, certainly, while other organizations have, you know, often left New York City, and sometimes for good reason, you can look at financial firms saying, look, it's about dollars and cents here. It's a whole lot more sense for us to be in Miami. Manhattan Institute is based in Manhattan. It's going to stay in Manhattan. It'll always be Manhattan-based. But it's also a national group. You know, we have people all around the country. You know, Chris Chris Rufo is in the Pacific Northwest, and uh, you know, some some of my colleagues in North Carolina, Florida, D.C. We are both national. We are both like hyper-national and hyper-local at the same time. I think that makes us uh, an excellent think tank. But I'm biased. So. What's clear, though, is that uh, with New York in their backyard, we are we are diligently focused on the future of New York City because really, so much of the rest of the country pays attention to New York City, and and, and often how New York City goes, for better or worse, so goes the rest of the country. So, so the future of New York City, I think, matters to people even outside of New York. One of the really interesting things that's been happening is New York's kind of suffered more than other cities but also really captured maybe more than it's been clear in other cities, the, the kind of reality of this metropolitan majority. So, so here's what I mean. So one is just very obvious. Um, there's been thousands of deaths from COVID-19 in New York City. Crime has shot up double digit, violent crime, double digit percentages. These are shootings, murders, and they've been concentrated in poor well, often more minority neighborhoods. And so it's been really victimizing the same communities that have been hit hardest by COVID. And then, of course, there's been the 
restrictions on life, the lockdowns, and then of course the economic costs of that. The dip in the economy, the downturn in employment was worse in New York City than in the entirety of the rest of New York State. And really some of the worst downturns and, and labor hits in the entire country. It's just, just catastrophic pain in the labor market and the economy. And so even as New York City has indeed bounced back uh, a little bit, uh, there's still the, basically the dip was so deep that it's still going to take a long time to come back. And if you've been there recently, uh, if you, you know, you'll, you'll know that there's still a lot of restrictions on life, on going to restaurants, you know, just now they're going to be introducing, they are introducing uh, restrictions so that you can't dine indoors unless you show a vaccination card or one of the apps that the state or city are providing you to prove vaccination. Uh, and so, you know, all of this combined with declining consumer sentiment, um, fears among travelers with the Delta variant, I really think this just uh, ensures that New York City is going to take even longer to come back than we thought previously. Federal aid has papered over so many of the deficits that the city and the state, as well as agencies like the MTA, which runs the subways, have faced tens of billions of dollars in shortfalls. All that's been papered over, not just for this year, but for a couple of years to come. Nevertheless, I think the pain is going to last for many years to come, perhaps even after this federal aid has run out. So I think it's critical that the next mayor of New York City get back to growth. That is absolutely fundamental. Get people moving back, get the economy coming back, get jobs coming back, and not just in Manhattan. It's got to be across the entirety of the city. So I think it's really telling. So the, the Metro Majority point, I think, is really key here. Three of the four leading candidates for the next mayor were all relatively, big caveat, relatively for New York, were relatively moderate. These were Eric Adams. Uh, Brooklyn Borough President, uh, Catherine Garcia, former sanitation commissioner under Bill de Blasio, uh, and Andrew Yang, uh, famously the proponent of universal basic income, ran for president, then ran for mayor. You know, these were by far the leading candidates. And when we asked the voters, if the, we asked both registered voters and likely Democratic primary voters at the Manhattan Institute, you know, what are your key priorities? Number one issue by far consistently was public safety and crime. And so even as, you know, op-ed boards were saying, well, crime is not that really big of a deal. And don't you know that it's not as bad as it was in the 80s? Like at least, you know, we're not having thousands shot and killed, right? Isn't You should be grateful for that. Really, the people of New York were saying, no, 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 no. This does matter to us. A, a massive increase in crime, even from a low base, does matter to us. And it certainly matters to the families whose children have been shot or who live in fear. You know, uh, my wife and I were living in Gowanus, uh, which is a neighborhood within Brooklyn. You know, this is an up and coming neighborhood, but suddenly when the pandemic hit, it took a sharp turn for the worse. And, you know, we would have uh, feces dropped in our front porch and just, uh, uh, men with metal uh, pipes just just rampaging down our streets, uh, kept up all hours of the night uh, with with fireworks and all sorts of chaos and noise, and police would never respond. You know, this is 
This really matters to whether or not you think you have a future in New York City. And so one of the encouraging things is the majority spoke in the primary for mayor. And in a 7-1 Democratic city, it's the Democratic primary that is the election that matters in New York City. And what they said loud and clear was, you know, we are not plumping for progressivism. We want someone who just cares about the basics public safety, prosperity, a good education for our children. And, you know, those are the people who won. And I I think it it was a shock to the system. Uh, Both of the elected officials who tend to sit pretty in New York City, it's a shock to them. It's a shock to the pundits and kind of the elites in the city, just how successful that, as I said, kind of a metropolitan majority message resonated. And it's really one that we've been pushing at the Manhattan Institute, saying focus on the basics. We gave them a playbook for the next for the, for the next mayoral administration, and you know you can look through their uh, the, the the candidates' plans. You can look through the public statements, and they you know forget party ID. They really do line up with a lot of the things that we've been encouraging. Just kind of common sense solutions. Doesn't matter partisan ID. Common sense solutions to local issues where, you know, frankly, partisanship and, and the cultural war just don't and shouldn't resonate quite as much. And so, you know, I really think we should be encouraged that coming out of this, though the challenges of New York City are not going away, that we've had this wake up moment with the election process for the next mayor, where we're saying, no, we've got to do things a different way. And we have people beginning to listen and, and saying that they will begin to do things a different way, you know, at the Manhattan Institute, we intend to keep them to that promise. So what are some things you mentioned that you, that you had a playbook? So what, what are some of the plays in the playbook? What can cities do to kind of uh, bring themselves back from the brink in these issues that you've identified? Yeah, yeah. So we focused on six core issues. Uh, we have housing, transportation. Uh, budgeting, education, um, small business issues, public safety. And each one of them, we say, look, here's, here's five or six ideas. So, so, you know, six categories, six ideas. So let's just take housing, something I care a lot about. Let's make it easier to build uh, accessory dwelling units. So, so these are the backyard apartments. And you think, Wow, New York City filled with towers. How can you even have a backyard? You know, gotta be honest. If you uh, if you get outside of Manhattan, maybe the really dense parts of Queens and Brooklyn, go to you know the the outer reaches of Brooklyn. Go to Staten Island. Uh, go to the really any of the outer reaches of the of the five boroughs in New York, and you'll see honestly what looks like. A pretty dense but traditional suburbia. There's actually a lot of space really close to transit lines in New York City with a lot of space where you could build a whole lot more housing, but not disrupt the fabric of the neighborhood. Um, and it's still relatively difficult to build more accessory dwelling units. We should be encouraging more of this kind of missing middle housing types, facilitating more micro units. You know, there's been a big push for publicly subsidized housing in New York City. This was a big, a big priority of Mayor de Blasio, where he was said, look, if you want to build in New York City, we're going to mandate that you have affordable housing. 
And, you know, if you pencil it out, great. If you can't, well, guess what? You can't build. But what happens is that mandatory inclusionary uh, housing, that mandatory affordable housing comes with a price tag. And more often than not, city taxpayers and even state taxpayers pay for it in perpetuity. And that is fine when the budget's growing, population's growing, not so good when the opposite occurs, like during a pandemic. And so micro units are kind of a naturally affordable housing solution. Uh, you know, I get it. Not everybody wants to live in, you know, what may be a grown up dorm. Uh, but honestly, uh, when the city kind of becomes your living room and it's a wonderful place to be, you frankly don't mind just a very basic pad for your stuff and to not pay a whole lot of money for just coming out of college. Wonderful, wonderful deal. So, you know, these kind of practical solutions to cut the red tape, strangling new housing construction and, and preventing uh, new housing from coming online when, you know, over the past decade, we've just added 0.3 new housing units for every one new job to help address that jobs housing mismatch. I think this should be well within the possibility of a new mayor to address. And so just go down the line, education, budgeting, transportation, we want to bring up these kind of practical solutions. So I just really encourage anybody to check it out. I think it doesn't just apply to New York City. You know, New York City is in one sense, like dramatically different from any other city in terms of density in America. But on the other hand, New York City is like America, but even more so. And so if you think of like the solutions of New York City as being, you know, solutions that you could adopt, just New York City can take it to the extreme, then really everything should be uh, just a, a, you know, a a sandbox for you to play in for solutions. So a friend of the show and personal friend Kate Hyde tweeted something to to the effect that this morning that other than collecting our taxes, I cannot think of one thing we can trust the government to do. And of course, she's, she's saying this and, you know, after the fall of Kabul. And as I was sort of watching things unfold in Afghanistan, one of the things that immediately came to my mind, even though it's kind of disjointed, is that as we look to the government, we hold the military in high esteem, and then we see a situation like this happen in Afghanistan, which can't really blame the military per se as much as the decision makers, but there's still this this aspect of public trust to it. And then we've gone through a year and a half of a public health crisis that I would contend is also very much a public trust crisis and a sort of a backlash of the public against what they viewed as overreaching government, government that was too, uh, too restrictive at times, making too many demands. Um, I guess what I want you to do, I, like I said, this is rather disjointed, but I want to see if you can be the one who uh, pulls this together for me. Do you see that the situation in Kabul is also going to make city governments more difficult? Is it going to make uh, dealing with the ongoing public crisis of, um, of of COVID more difficult? And And I guess the sort of follow-up question to this is, is there a way that and don't laugh, is there a way that conservatives can be the voice of reason, rationality, prudence, or has that train left the station? And with that, I am going to drop that heap of mess in your lap. Go ahead and comment. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, with all due respect to Kate, who said, you know, 
other than collecting taxes, I can't think of one thing we can trust government to do. I'm not even sure we can trust them to collect taxes. Now, that said, <laughs> I, I think there's been a long tradition in America, but especially after the 60s and 70s, of Americans trusting their state and local institutions more so than the federal ones. And that's true even during a pandemic. So, you know, there was a poll back in April 2020, found about two in five Americans gave the federal government excellent or good marks on its handling of the coronavirus, but a majority said their state and local governments are doing a good job. Uh, Gallup also has consistently had polls. You know, you can go back years, there is a consistent gap. You, if you just draw a line across a graph and you have the years going from left to right, and you just say that, you know, there may be a lot of squiggly ups and downs in terms of trust of government, but always at the top, local governments, followed by state governments, and then way down to the bottom of the federal government, way even further down is Congress. So, so really, there's always been a lot more trust in our local governments, especially, and I think that's for good reason. Uh, this is a long tradition in America that we trust the government that's closest to us, uh, that we are much more likely to just treat our neighbors differently, trust, treat locals differently than a far off capital. And, you know, especially in our increasingly nationalized politics, even state and local issues, especially since about 2000, there's been a lot of research literature on this, but you know, especially since 2000, even state and local politics have been nationalized. And I think most people recognize that that's a bad thing. The more an issue is nationalized, the more likely it will become caught up and, and become collateral damage in the cultural war that is gripping our national politics today. And also, frankly, the more that local politicians, even state politicians, can run on a national issue, you know, where do I stand on Trump or Trump's latest tweet or, you know, what's your stance on Afghanistan? They may have nothing to do with how well your city picks up trash. In fact, it may do it terribly. But, but you know, in an increasingly nationalized system, well, people are more likely to vote by the letter R&D after your name or your position on a Trump tweet when he was allowed to tweet, then whether you're actually doing a good job in your job as governor or mayor or city council member, that's, I think, ultimately bad. And so, you know, I think we should be concerned that the more our national politics goes off the rails and we become increasingly nationalized, that there's really no buffer anymore. We don't really, we really don't treat state and locals being any different than the national. And so if something does happen that makes a big dent in our trust of national government, of our leaders, of our president, well, that could really have a lot of damaging repercussions across a variety of institutions in America. So, so yes, I would, I would argue that if you've made a colossal mistake in a place like Afghanistan, where you see, even this morning, horrifying images, video of desperate uh, Afghan citizens clinging to the wheels of an Air Force plane, even as it takes off, even as they plummet to the ground of their death, just so desperate for rescue that we are not giving them. 
that I think people do begin to question whether the government has their best interest in mind as well. If we're willing to just give up on people that we promised, a lot of these people were partners with us in Afghanistan. The fact that we were even let them just maybe even die under our watch, we just don't care. I think that will have some repercussions. I don't know how, but that that should lead us to to question, you know, whether our federal government does have our best interests in mind. Yeah, and I I realize that being a being somewhat libertarian, I'm sort of a unexpected voice of saying that we need greater trust in the government. Um, but it does seem to me that this public health crisis is also a public trust issue, uh, crisis. And I guess my question for you is someone in the policy world as opposed to politics. Is there much that can be done from a policy perspective that can garner trust? Or is it more about the uh, the ability to communicate well and the integrity of I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do, then I'm going to go do it, then I'm going to tell you what I've just done and having a sort of integrity um, to that whole process? Or is there anything that can be done from a uh, policy perspective and maybe just simple competence? You know, what can sort of those in the think tank world do to bring, you know, you know, push things more towards competence and uh, garner public trust? You know, I, I'll be the first to admit that in an increasingly anti-elite age, that's anti-elite often for good reason. When the elites fail us, when experts fail us or mislead us, it makes it tough for a think tank full of experts to come along and say, well, we have the right expert opinion. And that is a challenge. I think that that's why it's incumbent upon us to tell local stories through our city, city journal outlet and to for us to do the kind of polling that we've been doing to show that what we're proposing is not just something that we've cooked up in an ivory tower, that is something that is broadly popular and actually works. And we've demonstrated that consistently in New York City. And, you know, we have a poll in the field right now in America's fastest growing cities to kind of make this point across the rest of the country. There is a metropolitan majority and that they are pragmatic and persuadable. They do believe in kind of common sense ideas on prosperity public safety and education. And, you know, I think that that can help hopefully bridge the divide between, you know, all of us as Americans and the people we put in power or the, the people who are uh, in elite positions in this country. You know, I, I really think that uh, at the end of the day, outside of the culture war, a lot of Americans are pretty commonsensical um, and generally believe in, in a lot of the same, they have a lot of shared ideals, kind of see the world in the same way. And a lot of the division that you see in this country is an outgrowth of really an intra-elite fight for power. You know, you have people using the culture war to bludgeon their opponents over the head so they can get one set of people in power, out of power, and put themselves in. And, you know, we should resist getting caught up in that. We, you know, we tried the Manhattan to, to not get caught up in that and just, you know, be a fair broker and do consistent work and make it approachable to 
not just the elites, but people who are really passionate about their local communities and care about policy issues because it matters to them, their kids. And I think that that can help bridge the divide. But I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to be all smoke and mirrors here. I think we have a long way to go to restore trust in this country and our core institutions. And it's incumbent upon the people granted positions of great authority in these institutions to prove themselves worthy of our trust and to act in such a way that, as you've all lived in, of AEI has said, institutions no longer become performative platforms for them, but ones that are transformative and ones that are uh, really shaping them as good and honest people who are who who think of themselves as more servant leaders than performers on a public stage. Talking about performing, I, I know the, I don't expect you to be sort of a uh, a uh, an expert on the political career of Andrew Cuomo, but here you know obviously we all we all know the the allegations, and we know that he's at this point has resigned. Is there, and again, I realize there's a distinction between being in the policy world versus politics and so forth, but is there a way, and I don't mean this in a Rahm Emanuel sort of way of taking advantage of his his crisis, if you will, but is there a way to show a consistency on the subject on, you know, on treatment of females in the workplace? And is there a way that you can go and take this situation and advance a you know ad- advance better policy, uh, also to show again more integrity on the subject rather than just simply piling on Cuomo and uh, you know sort of as a gotcha. Uh, is there is there something there that this can be anything remotely like a you know make you know making a, the best out of the situation, t- turning it into a teaching moment? Well, I I, I do want to take a moment to say that. For as much as this story has been about Cuomo, and he loves it, it's again, even in his downfall, the story is all about Andrew Cuomo. Let's just take a moment to remember the thousands that died in New York's nursing homes and retirement facilities. You know, th- th- these are people who have suffered through, frankly, the governor's incompetence, and he covered it up, and he covered it up for months. And the work of you know, our friends at the Empire Center up in Albany, I'm not sure we would have known the extent of the deaths or the cover-up absent their work. And they've been dogged in that. And I think that's part of answering the question of where we go from here. You know, whoever is in power in Albany is going to need groups like the Empire Center holding them to account. It is not without reason that all that three of the past recent, most recent governors have all left office under a cloud. Uh, there's a reason why there was a couple years back, Andrew Cuomo gave a PowerPoint presentation where he photoshopped his head on the Three Amigos. If you remember that movie, uh, you know, there's Chevy Chase and Steve Martin, Martin Short, and and he put his head up there and he put the heads of the, 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 ch- the different chambers in Albany, uh, the Senate and, and, and their version of the House, the Assembly, all of the three amigos out of office, resigned in disgrace, some even faced in endured jail time. 
you know, there is a culture of corruption in Albany, and that is not going away simply because Andrew Cuomo was caught after years of everybody knowing that he was somebody who sexually harassed women, or at least the rumors were out there. And that's even after years of him having a bullying and vindictive relationship with everybody around him, including lawmakers. You know, it was really interesting after Andrew Cuomo said that he was going to step down. And by the way, he's yet to step down, never count out that he could do something before he leaves. Um, but, but Andrew Cuomo, you know, when he said that he was going to leave, the state controller Tom DiNapoli, said, the king is dead. Long live the queen. And there was this kind of like celebratory atmosphere around his departure. You know, that a lot of people in Albany are breathing a sigh of relief that Andrew Cuomo is leaving, saying he's going to leave. And Kathy Hochul, uh, the longtime lieutenant governor since 2015 under uh, Andrew Cuomo, is stepping in. You know, Kathy is, in some respects, a breath of fresh air. Somebody who not only is the kind of as much of an opposite, not just in gender, but an opposite in approach from Andrew Cuomo. She's somebody who it's part of her brand to go out to every corner of New York City and shake hands and 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 and, and learn people's names and their histories and 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 care about them and their families and their priorities and make sure their priorities are heard. And she's beloved. She doesn't have the kind of high profile that Andrew Cuomo has. And by the way, Andrew Cuomo would never let anybody get as high a profile as him. That's is by design. But behind the scenes, you know, Kathy Hochul's lieutenant governor has built an incredible base of support across every corner of the state. And I think that will serve her well as the governor. Now, um, of all of the suspected candidates for governor, including Tish James, the attorney general who came out with a damning report on Andrew Cuomo, uh, Kathy is the only one who has publicly declared that she is going to run. Tish James, in some of the most recent polling, is polling ahead of Kathy Hochul. So, you know, her reelection uh, or her, her, her election as governor for the first time after being kind of a caretaker after uh, Andrew Cuomo is not necessarily assured if Tish James jumps into the race. Um, but I really think. Kathy Hochul has not only this kind of private base of support, but really has a long runway to positively introduce herself to the rest of the state. One of the things that we'll have to watch is just how much she can accomplish uh, with the time that she has in office prior to an election. You know, she'll kind of come in as a lame duck. Uh, the leaders of the Senate and the Assembly have been itching to reclaim power that Andrew Cuomo took away from them. And so they're going to use this power vacuum to reassert themselves. And Kathy Hochul won't have an electoral mandate independent of Governor Cuomo to push back with them on. So we'll see how that shakes out. And, you know, we'll have to watch to see how the progressive caucus, which has been growing exponentially in New York, uh, will take advantage of the situation. But nevertheless, I just think that the Ascendance of Kathy Hochul uh, is a positive sign, is, is, is a positive move beyond Andrew Cuomo. And, you know, really, I think a message ultimately that 
whatever you as a public leader do in the shadows, uh, you may think that pissing people off and assaulting people and doing all, all manner of rotten things behind the scenes that you can get away with it. I think we're seeing that even the things done behind the closed doors and in the shadows, uh, no amount of bullying can prevent that from eventually coming out. And, and Andrew Cuomo is paying the price as he should. You know, you, you take Andrew Cuomo, who, you know, I guess maybe a few months ago, if you were trying to think about who might potentially run um, as a run for, for the presidency, if Joe Biden doesn't seek reelection, um, he'd probably be right there on that short list. And so now he's presumably out of the picture. This is quite a fall. Uh, who, if you were, if you were, you know, now in a, a Hollywood producer, who would you cast in the role as Andrew Cuomo? Well, I think uh, Chris Cuomo is a great actor. Could be a great, uh, you know, next gig for him after cable TV. You know, I, I, I don't pretend to know of anyone that I would want to play Andrew Cuomo. That just seems like a role that I would have to take a, you know, a long shower every day after playing. I just don't think I'd want people <laughs> doing that. You know, whenever, if, if you read the attorney general's report on Andrew Cuomo, the words like toxic and vindictive and abusive come up over and over and over again to describe governor Cuomo and the culture of fear in his office. Cuomo even harassed the health department employee who administered his COVID test on live TV. You know, this is something where I actually think I don't want a made for TV version. I don't want him getting any more TV coverage than he already got in the year of COVID when he basically had his own daily talk show that all the press of New York City showed up for, knowing, by the way, or of New York State showed up for, knowing, by the way, that uh, every rumor about Andrew Cuomo was in fact true. P- people knew that behind the scenes. They just couldn't write about it or too afraid to write about it. And yet, nevertheless, they gave him the high profile that he wanted and gave him a platform to ink a multi-million dollar book deal written by his aides for him that he then cashed the check for. And, you know, he's not returning that money. He doesn't need any more attention. Oh, I was, uh, what did he do to the, uh, the woman who gave him the COVID test? Well, I'll let interested people actually read the report, but he basically made a pass the, uh, at the worker. And it was very inappropriate. I won't repeat it here, but it was inappropriate. Um, you know, and I, I, I think I should just step back and say, like, even though, you know, I, I certainly am not going to hold back on saying that what Andrew Cuomo did to those he harassed is bad. I, I want to be clear. This is not me. This is not partisan. You know, right and left have rightly condemned Andrew Cuomo's behavior. And, you know, I, I know that a lot of people on the right love to dunk on Andrew Cuomo. Uh, I think that we can refrain from kind of, you know, I, I think we can frame from the Duncan contest and just simply look at the facts of the matter because they speak for themselves and they are damning. Well, on that happy note, 
uh, Michael, we hope to have you again sometime when we can uh, when we can all declare jubilee because we're past the pandemic and all is well with the world. Well, I am so excited for that. And I think if there's one message I have, it's that, you know, do not be afraid to speak up for the future of your city. If you think about running for office locally, you should do that. If you think that your school board's heading the wrong direction or your mayor is making a bad decision, you know, I think you should recognize that all those times you've been told that you're alone, that you're kind of common sense approach, that there isn't an audience for that. I think it's time to wake up to wake up and realize that you are not alone and that being involved locally is not just a way to like fight back against bad ideas and fight for good ideas. This is really about regaining trust in our country. And it needs to start with local institutions that we have rightfully trusted far more than any other institutions, governmental institutions in this country for decades. It starts locally. Recognize you're not alone. And the Manhattan Institute, I'll be there, you know, we'll be there with ideas. We're ready to equip you with ideas. There's many other allies out there ready to do that. Uh, There is a metropolitan majority, and we as the majority should be able to speak up. Michael, thanks again for joining us. Thank you.